Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, We have a, a great one today, you know, for a change. If you're a regular listener to this uh, weekly broadcast, you probably heard me say that I didn't want to do news of the day. And what I meant by that is you get that elsewhere. If you, if you want to hear about what's happening in politics, uh, you know, inside baseball, uh, horse race, that kind of thing, or, you know, what's happening in the news that day, you can get that from a lot of sources, some more edifying, some more to this taste or that. But you can spend... 25 hours a day being marinated in two days' news. See, what I wanted to to do is create evergreen shows that you could listen to a year later. I'll give you an example. Uh, During the Kavanaugh hearings, I did a podcast with Jeffrey Tubin and uh, Nancy Gertner of Harvard Law on the Federalist Society and its history and what it's become and how dangerous it is. And I think it's completely fresh and educational and thought-provoking and actually very funny show, if I do say so myself. And then the next week, I could move on to uh, Michael Lewis and his brilliant book, The Fifth Risk, about how, because Trump had no interest in government, he had populated his agencies with a bunch of incompetent, venal, and self-interested toadies, and how that might mean that they would not be prepared for the fifth risk, which is the unforeseen calamity that his government misses entirely and that they don't focus on. And in that conversation, we touched on Trump's getting rid of the Directorate for Global Health and Security and Biodefense within the National Security Council. Uh-oh. Well, this pandemic is now not just the news of the day, of every day. It's now the news of the century. So it looks like this is the thing I'm going to focus on for the remainder of the century. Now, when I was in the Senate, I got to know Tony Fauci and Ron Klain, but I spent more time on the phone with uh, Tom Frieden, director of the CDC, and so many of the impressive, dedicated people who were leading the charge against the Ebola crisis. However, during my time overlapping the Trump administration, I did not meet with Jared Kushner, who has taken a much-needed break from his work bringing peace 
to the Middle East to focus his efforts, leading the White House task force on the coronavirus pandemic. So I did not get to know Ali Sharif Alamadi, Qatar's finance minister who helped arrange Qatar's $1 billion bailout of the Kushner family's 666 Fifth Avenue Turkey. You know, we miss the brilliant, dedicated folks who populated the Obama administration. One of them is Austin Goolsby, uh, chairman of Obama's uh, Board of Economic Advisors. I am so pleased to have Austin back on. Uh, this time, each of us is sheltered in our respective homes, his being in Illinois, uh, where he is a professor at the University of Chicago Business School. Now, in the interview, I, I think you'll see why Professor Goolsby is, is a, a great guest. He, he's not just a brilliant economist, but someone uh, who explains pretty sophisticated concepts in a way that are immediately accessible and, and fascinating. And he brings to all that a real clear-eyed common sense and decency that I think will make him a national treasure. However, however, Austin's one failing in this interview is his inability or unwillingness to accept that Donald Trump is crazy. And you'll hear this a few times during the interview where Austin just cannot understand why Trump won't just acknowledge that the federal government was a little slow in addressing the crisis and develop a test that could have been widely administered. So we got a little behind the eight ball there and that he needs to do things like use the Defense Production Act to manufacture critical medical supplies to overcome shortages of equipment and devices such as masks and gowns and ventilators. Austin would make the point that people root for leaders during times of crisis and respect ones who acknowledge mistakes but then act to correct them in order to save people's lives. And you will hear me make the case repeatedly that he is unable to do that because he is clinically insane. He has something called narcissistic personality disorder. And I acknowledge that I am not a psychiatrist, nor have I personally examined the president. But there is absolutely no doubt that he is mentally ill, that he is just bonkers. And this is a case I make strongly in my new piece entitled The President is Crazy, which you can find on my website, alfranken.com. But... You'll see in the last half of the interview, Austin, I think, demonstrates how someone who is absolutely brilliant can be stupid about something, which is he cannot understand why Trump doesn't start doing what makes sense for the country and for himself. Now, we, we did this interview uh, right after Congress had uh, passed uh, that the huge $2 trillion uh, Bill, and uh, that's where that's where you'll pick up. Uh, the two trillion dollar package. Let's just start there. 
I don't know how much you have absorbed, but let's go right to how helpful is this going to be in the next week, in the next two weeks? Uh, is it helping the right people? Is there money going out to the wrong people? What do you see here? Obviously, that stimulus bill is the big headline. But the backup second headline is the unemployment claims data came out, and it's by far the worst of all times. 3.2 million, is that what it is? Yeah, almost 3.3 million. You know, so the, the most people filed for unemployment insurance this week by far than have ever filed. It's, it's the worst week in the history of job destruction uh, in the United States. And it's probably just the beginning. And that puts the focus back on the main headline of what is that bill about and what is it trying to do? It's wrong to call it a stimulus. It's not a conventional stimulus. Stimulus like 2009 is you're in a normal recession. The government tries to do things to generate spillover activity in the private economy. We're going to give a tax cut. We're going to have direct spending. We're going to do stuff that ha- that creates more activity and more jobs. This is really relief. Everybody's going to batten down the hatches. And that's what we need. I mean, that's what we yeah, need. Yeah, I think it is what we need. The spirit of that is what we need. Right. So it's $2 trillion. And if you look, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to things that I would characterize we less need. You know, let me guess uh, the cruise industry. Yeah, look, cruise, cruise industry. We're gonna we're gonna single out airlines alone to get a special uh, twenty five billion dollars or some benefit. And how much does that go, for example, to help uh, folks that are being laid off by the airlines? Uh, well, we'll have yet to see that. Mm-hmm. You you haven't read the uh, 900 pages? Well, what matters is what are the airlines going to do? And in all of the business side stuff where they're, in addition to the loans to some industries, there's about $280 billion of further corporate tax cuts. And (laughs) there's going to be this question, what do they do with the money? And just in a similar way of the last tax cut, what are they going to do with the money? Hopefully, they've written some safeguards because that was the clearest day there was going to be. It was uh, most of it was going to be a stock buyback. So that's prohibited with this money. I'm, I'm sure, right? Yeah, I don't know. You know, they uh, if, if, if you take loans, I think they uh, they will not let you take direct bailout money and and use it for buybacks. But if you cut the employer side of the payroll tax, there. Are, some detailed provisions that basically they magnified some of the tax cuts from the Trump tax cut bill. They made them bigger. They made them easier to use. And I don't think there's any restrictions on on that money. If you save money on taxes and you decide you want to pay it out at a dividend or more executive compensation or however you want to pay it out, I don't. I don't think, as the economists say, money is fungible and. Um, and so I, th- I think you can use them, that money for however you want. And, and I guess they will want to buy back their stock because it must be low now or something. Is that, is that a, a perverse incentive or something? I don't know. Look, I think of that stock buybacks 
is basically like paying a dividend. It's just a way to distribute money to the shareholders. I would hope that the that the companies put in this is a very tough spot that all of business and workers are going to be in for a couple of months here. And I will hope that they wouldn't just go back to previous habits when what we really need, as I say, is relief. I mean, what what we need is is some forbearance or relief or hit the pause button, however you want to describe it. I mean, obviously, giving people unemployment insurance, uh, sending cash to people. Yeah. That, look, that's a lot. There's kind of multiple parts. One is they're going to mail checks to almost everybody. You know, the there's caps on, on income, which there should be. Part is through unemployment insurance. So if you lose your job, you, you get some payments. Part is standing up lending facilities, they call it, work with the Fed so that small businesses, medium-sized businesses could come get emergency loans with low or no interest and very generous terms of payback. Some of it is explicit bailout money or sizable cuts to corporate taxes, trying to, to give tax relief. And then there is a component, maybe less than 10% of the total, which is money to hospitals, money to states. It would seem that money to hospitals and equipment to hospitals is our highest priority. Now, basically, let's let's talk about the coronavirus and basically why we're here and what we what this how this package relates to how we go forward because the president who i contend uh is is nuts uh and one day he says one thing and one day he says another or for a month he was over a month saying one crazy thing which is this is not a problem everything's under control we're down to almost zero, people say, all that stuff. And then he'll come back and sound sane because somebody convinced him to do the right thing. And then he'll just veer right back and we're, he wants us in the pews in, in Easter. It's on display every day that the man is, uh, has a problem. And we get, to, we get to watch it every friggin' day because he is, has to do this because he can't do rallies. So he has to stand up there and instead of saying, okay, let's do this someplace else. Let's have Fauci do this. Let's have those people do it. So what the president now is talking about is us going back out there and the the infection spiking if we do that, right? Yeah, and there's so much to unpack and talk about in that, in, in what you just said. I mean, first... It's totally obvious that if somehow the president could control it and he went to everyone in America and said, hey, you know what? It's Easter weekend. Let's all go out and party and go out. Let's go back to you know sports games and, and go to restaurants the way we were doing before. Every public health expert and epidemiologist in the country says that would lead to a mass round of infections and we'll be back to square one where we got to go back into lockdown to try to stop the thing spreading. At a deeper level, 
I guess I'm I'm puzzled by why the pre- the president loves to be the hero of the story, loves to have a TV show where he, where he's the good guy and and is the winner. There is historically such a huge wellspring of support of the American people for its leaders during a crisis that they crave leadership from their political figures at a moment like this, even among people of the opposite party. And you see this in New York, you know, Governor Cuomo gets up, has a sober briefing each day, every couple of days where he just tells the truth and tries to be consistent. And you see Republicans in New York say, well, I never liked him, but he's doing a good job now. And Rudy Giuliani, same thing in New York City after 9-11. So if President Trump had just played it straight, I actually think that the American people would have responded quite positively to that. And in a way, the political campaign of 2020 would have taken a back seat. And I'm sure there would be a lot of Democrats who would be frustrated and they say, oh, he's not as good as, as he seems at these press conferences. Instead, I think it's because the president has such a short run mentality, he couldn't look past that. So you see the pandemic break out in China. And the thing about infectious diseases is they don't stay in one place, you know, because people move around, they bring it with them. And so it went from China to Korea. The South Koreans had an ideal best of world response to the, to, to the outbreak of the crisis with lots of testing. And they were able to avoid going into total lockdown the way we have. And we went for probably almost eight weeks with the president, as you say, downplaying not just the severity of the crisis, downplaying the existence of the crisis. No, there's only 14 cases here. It's going to be zero. People can, they're finding that they just get better. They can go back to work. Yeah, it just disappears. They can go to work even if they're infected. No, I mean, it was terrible. And it literally costs thousands of people their lives anywhere that the leaders have downplayed this and allowed the the infection to spread. Anywhere in the world, uh, but here. And then he is such a a sick person that he won't acknowledge that at all. So, you know, whatever he says on Tuesday, on Wednesday, that doesn't matter. My, My old mentor and friend, Paul Volcker, would always say, that when the crisis begins, the only asset you have is your credibility. I've used that a lot and not cited Paul Volcker. Yeah, we should cite Paul Volcker because that, that was he would say that through the financial crisis, and it really applies in all crises. And he has no credibility. You know, let's have multiple versions of what our strategy is right out of the gate. In a way, this was the, the thing that set back in the in the 2008 crisis, at the end of the Bush administration, the bottom just starts to drop out. And so if you remember, they come forward and they say, oh, you know what? Um, we want this money. We're going to do a TARP and we're going to buy up toxic assets. And and people say, wait a minute, what? How could you do that? And then they say, oh, oh okay, we're not going to buy toxic assets. We're going to overpay for these assets. And they say, that won't work. And they say, okay, okay, 
we're going to put money into the banks. And I don't think that much was put on the fact that if you have three strategies in the first three weeks, you demonstrate you don't know what you're doing. And that sets back your credibility and that makes it extremely hard to try to fix things. And it feels to me like President Trump is reliving that. Okay. So if you say it's nothing and then you say it's important and then you're back to saying, I think we should all go out by Easter, it, it dramatically undermines the credibility of your policy response so that whatever you say, people are thinking, well, wait a minute, in two weeks, is it going to be something totally different? Like this is totally different than it was two weeks previously. And, and I think that's a real problem. They've got to stop doing that. I, I think that's an enormous problem now. And people have been saying, look, look, the president, it was awful the beginning he he played this down he ignored it people are going to lose their lives because this thousands maybe hundreds of thousands maybe even over a million could be just tracked back to us not doing anything for the basically two months but they say but let go of that let's just go forward i would love to do that but every day he's doing it again yes so what we need is basically he's going to do these because he can't do rallies. So he is an egomaniac, and he has to have an audience. That's what gets him juiced up. So he's doing these every day. And then we have to watch this spectacle, and everybody has to, you know, Fauci has to see this naked emperor at the podium and not say the president is, is naked or say it in a very, very diplomatic way. It's, it's what I don't get. Why does the emperor have to be naked? That's what, why doesn't Donald Trump come out to his press briefings and just tell it straight and talk to the policy <laughs> advisors and say, here's what's happening. And why are you laughing? Why doesn't he do that? I don't understand. You have to understand he's crazy. That's I all. Guess. That's the answer to your question. <laughs> he, he is a malignant narcissist. He, I'm, again, I'm not a psychiatrist and I've not personally examined the man, but he has a, a disorder and it is that whatever he says, it doesn't matter. And he's up there and I got, I got this eight minutes covered. I got the next eight minutes covered. <laughs> I know what I'm going to say. That's totally what it seems like. And now evidently he's upset at Governor Cuomo and Governor Pritzker because they're getting too good a press. And my thing is, so fine, do what they do. Just get up and tell the truth. But the he American can't. people want he can't. this. Austin, give it up. This shows you how stupid, incredibly smart people can be. He can't do that, <laughs> Austin. You're a great economist. You're chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under... Barack Obama, there's something you're not getting here. He's incapable of doing this. You're right. He, he just will not do that. So uh, the point is, we're just going to have to do this. There's, <laughs> they're going to cover it. And the whole Fauci drama is there because Fauci, uh, I wrote something where I compared it to Salieri and Mozart. And Fauci's <laughs> Mozart and uh, the president is Salieri. He's a bitter hack and a manipulative bitter hack and then you got this 
this genius who has this gift of being, having integrity and also being brilliant. And there's this tension always there, which is what I'm looking for, which is, you know, Fauci came close. He said, I can't shove him out of the way, <laughs> you know, when he's saying something that's not true. And then you didn't see him the next day. But now he's back. But I, I swear to God that this is going to be the show to watch. Uh, how long Fauci can do this job that he's doing and knowing that in the background he's helping any 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 kind of reaching this guy helps, but he can't reach him because he is so deranged. So the tension to me is going to be the president is going to continue to say things that are not true, and Fauci is going to have to stand there and either wince or flinch or roll his eyes. Hold his head. You've seen him holding his head. The, the only thing I'll say, Al, is... I think that the short-term self-aggrandizement mentality that the president is taking, I think in a, in a way it's going to be made moot very rapidly because we're not yet to the peak of this health crisis. And you've literally now got hospitals in New York, which in some ways is the epicenter of the crisis. Yep. You've got them with so little protective equipment they're they're literally putting on garbage bags to protect themselves. Once the ICUs are full and our emergency rooms and hospitals look like what they did in Italy, where there's elderly and middle-aged and young people dying in the halls because they can't get a bed or a ventilator, I think the American people are going to be so upset with the images that they see and the and the, their their own relatives and the, how ill they are, I think there's going to be massive pressure on the president at that point to stop goofing off and and actually fix these problems. Okay, hold that thought. We got to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back with Austin Goolsby. The best way to learn a language: immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. The worst thing he's doing now is calling for people to fill the pews in Easter. And I guess he's done a caveat. We will see. But basically, this is what a number of uh, number of people are are calling for, which is it's like we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease. And so they're saying, let's just in 15 days, let's get out there. And of course, that's a just disaster, a disaster because then we spike again. And this disaster started with not reacting or making bad decisions on testing, et cetera, et cetera. I want to know how we decide when to leave, when to stop sheltering in place. I'm sure every everybody who knows anything about how these diseases work is saying we don't know yet. But boy, Easter is ridiculous. That's certainly what it seems like to me. I mean, Easter, how many days away is that? The president said more. He's now he said Easter. Before that, he was like, oh, I don't I don't want to wait a month. He said, you know, I'm talking about weeks, not not months. One of two things have to happen to to get out of lockdown. Number one, you must see the rate of spread of the virus falling substantially, which we haven't seen. It's still going up at pretty rapid rates. Or you have to have comprehensive testing so that people can go back to work who know they don't have the disease and it's very unlikely that they're just going to bump into somebody and catch it because that person hasn't been tested and doesn't know. That's what happened in Korea. They had extensive testing and they've incorporated technology. They were they started on it right out of the gate and they aren't in lockdown. That's the thing. They're not in lockdown in Korea. Their economy can come back because the only people that have to go into isolation are the people who test positive. And then they contact anybody whose phone was close to the phone of that person they send them a text. They say, you need to go get tested now. And those people go to a drive-through test and they get the results back in minutes, not days or weeks. And that's the way you get out of lockdown. That's right. But we can't do that because we're very late to the testing game. That's put us on this trajectory. So we have to absorb exactly what's in this bill that passed. And are there some good things in it you see and some bad things but the bottom line is that this economy doesn't start going until we get a handle on the virus and because we don't we didn't have the testing we've been flying blind yes and and so we got to get up to testing and we've got to let this play out to a point where letting people out to get the economy going, we have to be extremely careful about how we do that. Totally. And look, the, 
what we need to stop happening while we do this is they need to stop giving us the official information being wrong over and over. Okay. So this thing with testing, we messed up the first six to eight weeks, but then everyone recognized that testing was a huge bottleneck and that we needed to fix it. And if you remember vice president Pence, who is in charge of the task force, made a public announcement that they were going to have 4 million tests out by March 13th. There haven't been 4 million tests sent out to this day. So stop saying that. Just start telling (laughs) us what the actual truth is and people can handle it. We just need to get the correct information. And okay, again, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you keep saying that, but it has to. It has to happen. Let's just assume it doesn't because, come on. You know, <laughs> when, when you assume you make an ass out of Uma Thurman, you know that. Okay, so here's my question. You're an economist, okay? What is the wisest course of action to get our economy going in your view? That's in terms of, one, how long we stay locked down. But it's also look at workers. Let's look at companies. Are there companies being bailed out that shouldn't be? Yeah, look, probably, as I say, you know, (laughs) giving money to casinos and cruise lines, those are not the backbone of the economy. If you're going to give special treatment. Well, casinos are the backbone. Bone of <laughs> Donald Trump's. Yeah, you know, like these these are businesses that Trump knows about. So he says, "I, you know, I want special special money." That said, the thing about virus economics is that by far the most important thing you can do for the economy is anything that slows the spread of the virus, and that's why I favored early on things that, by conventional measures, are not stimulus are the opposite, like paid sick leave so that people that are sick don't come to work. Now, in a normal calculus, that's actually negative on GDP growth because you you pay people not to come to work so they don't produce. But the thing is, the data from the flu seasons has shown that that's actually a very effective policy at slowing the rate of spread of infectious disease because the people who are sick don't feel like they have to come in to put food on the table to get a paycheck. Okay, and what is the paid sick leave? How is that addressed in, in this bill? There's not a, a whole lot on paid sick leave in the bill. Um, th- this bill is a relief <laughs> bill. It's not really, uh, I think, it's not a fully a whole because there is some money, but the thing that's lacking in this bill, I love the relief. I it's It's vitally necessary. I love the forbearance. There are a lot of creative ideas in it. It's not fundamentally and primarily about fighting the virus. You would think that we would mobilize the powers granted to the executive branch by our law that give them the right in emergency and wartime to mobilize production for the kinds of resources you need to protect national security. Now would be the moment. This is the moment when you break out the emergency bourbon, whatever it is. And I can't understand why we're not doing that. This is Pearl Harbor, and we should be 
you say this is virus economics? Yeah. It's exactly what it is. Now, how does virus economics differ from normal economics? The main difference is that you got to address the virus before you can do anything about the economics. So virus economics says anything that slows the rate of spread of that virus allows us to get out of lockdown. And when we're in general lockdown, of course, the economy is going to be in a, in a horrible spot. I wrote a thing in the New York Times before anything really started got going in, in the U.S., in which I pointed out, if we get a health outbreak here of the magnitude of what they had in China, it's going to be worse for our economy than it was for China. And it was pretty horrible for China because more of our economy is all of these service sector industries, which are exactly the things that go into shutdown mode when people are afraid to go out and interact with each other. This face-to-face business is exactly why we set the all-time record for unemployment insurance this week. And it's because people don't want to go out of their houses if they think they're going to get a disease that is going to kill them or their family members who are at risk. So I think we've must redouble our efforts and do everything we can on that front. And that doesn't just mean focusing on the infection part. If we had treatments, if we had vaccines, if you had the feeling that there is a lower bound, that it won't get worse than X, anything like that is actually the best stimulus there is. Now, category two are things like what are in this what they're calling a stimulus bill, but is uh, I think of as a relief bill. We do need relief in a moment like this. In a way, it's like the, you know, the beach town in in the wintertime or something. We need to board up the windows, shut it down, and nobody starve and nobody have permanent damage if we can avoid it from what's a temporary shutdown. And then category three is let's try to juice this thing and get back to something like where we were before. And what I fear is that the administration at the least, and also a lot of members of Congress, are basically like, let's minimize one, let's do some of two, but really let's get to three. Let's get to juice the economy and get this thing back to running. Let's have tax cuts, you know, give companies more money and that's that's what leads to investment. You know, the Fed will cut the interest rate to zero and we'll have a big boom. But of course, we won't have a boom. Why would anybody invest anything now when there's all this uncertainty? This shouldn't be about a stimulus. This should be about getting past this. I agree. And making sure that people can eat. I agree. That they can stay in their home. That businesses can retain employees. That's what this needs to be about. And that's what a lot of it is about, I think. Right? A lot of this relief package is about that. But it's kind of wrapped in this language of stimulus, and it's stapled to some ideas which aren't that. They are just old-fashioned tax cuts are what get things moving. And the Fed is doing what it should do, but anybody who thinks that the Fed cutting the interest rate to 0% and buying up various kinds of bonds to try to get other interest rates low, if they think that that's going to get the economy to come back, 
I think they're kidding themselves because a cruise line is not going to buy another ship because the interest rate is low. I mean, we've got to get a handle on this virus. That's the number one thing for both life, keeping our citizens alive, and for the economy. You know what? The name of this bill should have been the pay your nut bill. And basically that like every business, every American should have their nut paid. <laughs> In other words, how much does it take me to survive during this 10-week period, This whatever this period is? And we don't know what it is, and that's why we don't know really what the size of the package should be. But the shape of it should reflect virus economics, which is we. this is our first virus economics, right? Yeah, pretty much, uh, of the modern era. era. Yeah, and, and the modern era has a different economy than we had during World War One and in, in the Spanish flu. Totally right. right. Yep. Yeah. So the point is, is that what's in this that's going to help carry us over and what is not in this that isn't going to do it and what is the best course of action over, and we don't know whether this is 10 more weeks Eight more weeks, 13 more weeks, we don't exactly know. But the smartest course of action would be to allow people to eat, allow people (laughs) to pay their mortgage, allow people to stay in their dwelling. That's it, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, look, I, I, I think that's right. I have seen the epidemiologists suggest that with no abatement, as they call it, that is, everybody just goes out and does what they did before. You could get 140 million people caught the virus in the United States. And if we had total lockdown everywhere, you could limit the total spread of the virus to, I think it was something like 15 million people. So 135 million people incrementally would get the disease from the worst outcome versus following the best practices. And I've actually seen some, I don't know, conservatives, Republicans, whatever, saying like, you know what? If people over 70 die, one, kind of good for solvency of Social Security. Two, those are the worst years of your life. Let's face it. I'm trying to think of what three could be because <laughs> I'm trying to put myself in their, their head. Anybody who says that, you would think that they would be ashamed. <laughs> and and whose, whose parents are, are 70 years old or are they themselves 70 years old or grandparents? I mean, the thought that we were just going to write off people's lives because, you know, we want the stock market to be higher seems unbelievable to me. And maybe it's just a sign that, some people care so much about their their partisan thing that they will literally say anything just because the president to ask them to say that. I have no idea, but that's bonkers. But separate from getting in a moral argument about it, it's just not even good economics. If your thing is, hey, let's let 70-year-olds die to fix the economy, this isn't fixing the economy. It's back to my thing of the emperor has no clothes. Why does the emperor have to have no clothes? Why doesn't the emperor just put on regular clothes like a normal person and recognize that if you slow the rate of spread of this virus, 
and you get the tests out there and you invoke the Defense Mobilization Act or whatever it's called, and you make ventilators and you make masks and you make respirators, you can do what they did in South Korea, which is get your economy out of lockdown and back to growing. And it's so how short-sighted can we be? This isn't, I'm not saying that the president should do something that's not in his own interest. I'm saying the president doing the right thing is in his best interest. They're well, that's one way so to look short-sighted. At it. It's, it's <laughs> opposing their own interest. He's crazy. That's, I just keep coming back to that. Don't expect anything. Else. So the rest of us, and like they, they took action in the Senate and we're going to it's going to take a long time to figure out, you know, what they put in there that Mnuchin is going to do, what the oversight of that is going to be, what the transparency of that is going to be. Uh, I suspect that we're going to see some really hinky stuff when we look back on this. But the question is, are people going to be able to survive? Are they going to be able to eat? Are they going to be able to stay in their homes? And that's kind of it. And are, are, are businesses going to be able to not go bankrupt? And can they survive this period where there's very little economic activity in their whatever it is they do? Because they have a place where, you know, they have a factory where a lot of people are working. Well, you can't do that. You can't fly planes. But I would think that it, the, the best thing to do is to keep those mechanics, those uh, flight attendants, those pilots, to keep them eating and in their homes and being able to get medical attention, again, you know, and, and, and also being able to find a way to take care of, of kids. Um, I... I know that my grandchildren are are sheltering with their parents. I, that's happening all over the country, and that's I think that's the bottom line. And and the the if we do that properly, and if we have the tests, and we can track who is infected, then at a certain point we come out the end of this, and boom, we go. That's what we want. And, and I think we can do that. This bill that hopefully is going to, you know, is passed the Senate. Let's, let's hope we can get through has a lot of things that at least in the short run are going to help ensure that everybody can keep food on the table. It's, it's going to try to keep small and medium sized businesses from going under. They're, they're trying to encourage them to keep workers on the payroll. And, and that's what they should be doing. It does have some money that goes to hospitals, some money that goes to states. To my mind, not near enough. And it staples in then some more questionable stuff, like I say, some corporate tax incentives and corporate tax cuts. We've got big lending facilities that could work, but if they have, in your in your lovely phrase, some hinky stuff in there, um, my fear is the, let's call it the, the political delegitimization of relief is the risk that the longer this goes, you know that they'll have to come back for more if we cannot 
solve the virus or or contain its spread. And if we pass $2 trillion, I mean, 10% of GDP, this is the biggest stimulus of all times as a share of, of the economy, bigger than the Obama stimulus, bigger than the New Deal as a share of the economy. If we do that, and then we come back in however many months or weeks and say, we need to do more. And the general feeling is, well, the first round didn't do very much and a whole bunch of it ended up going to cruise lines or you know people who didn't deserve it. Or if the companies that got the corporate rate cuts do not use it to keep people on the payroll, they instead use it to shore up their balance sheet and and let people go. I think there would be a real question of whether our politics is going to be able to commit to provide relief for the for as long and in the amounts that we would need. And so that makes me even more impatient and want them to put the number one focus on confronting the virus and slowing down the spread of that virus. Because only through that method can you reduce the amount of money and the amount of time that we're going to need this relief. Because I fear, given our experience with stimulus the last time, I fear the the longevity. You know, what's the life expectancy of people's willingness to just keep paying monetary relief? I don't know if it's going to be there. I mean, if you look at the polling about who's taking this seriously and how seriously they're taking it, there's a big difference between Republicans and Democrats. The Republicans in the Senate, the first package they wrote was unacceptable. Thank God the Democrats didn't give them the votes to pass it. Uh, This compromise is a compromise. But if if these Republicans start going like, nope, we've got to send people out there. We've got to tell people. Go ahead. But it's the governors, isn't it? Isn't the governors? Yeah, look, it's the governors. There is a chance that we get back into this into this dynamic, like with the Affordable Care Act, where it's like the blue states all expand Medicaid and the red states say, no, we're not going to we're not going to extend health insurance. But I I'm closetly optimistic on this front. I think the only reason that we're having this discussion in public now is because we have yet to reach the peak of the health part of this crisis. And when that happens, that part is, is going to be awful. But when that happens, I'm optimistic there. No, nobody's going to be getting up and saying this anymore of like, ah, let's all just go back out and, and interact with each other face to face again because I think it's going to be so clear how dangerous this virus is that we will just have a pivot. And I'm hopeful that when we pivot that the president, I know you keep laughing at me and saying that the president is crazy and he won't do this. But I I really think that if the images on TV are of how dangerous and deadly this virus is, I think they're going to change their tune. They're not going to be talking about, oh, I want everybody to go to church on on Easter and sit next to each other. I think they will 
in a way equally infuriatingly, they will start to say, no, no, I never said that. I've, from the beginning, I've been saying we need to get ventilators in every hospital and we need to get protective equipment. And let's hope that we get to that spot where it aligns, where the interests of saving lives and saving the economy align with the administration's political interests so that they start doing what we need to do to recover both health-wise and and economic-wise. Right now, we're not yet there. And that's a dangerous contradiction of priorities. That's, that's the thing that makes me the most uneasy right now. But I, I do think we're going to get off of that. And when we do, that's probably going to raise the president's approval rating. And we should be for that. We need the president to succeed here. We can't. The president is failing at some of the fundamental aspects of crisis leadership. And we can't afford him to fail. We, we need him to succeed. He needs to grow into the job. Right now, I, it doesn't really seem like he's doing that. Do you remember when Rumsfeld, I think it was when in Kuwait, he went to Kuwait, and this was at a period, I think it's 2006, where they didn't have the armor they needed. They hadn't up-armored you know, their Humvees, et cetera, and these guys are getting you know, killed or have be amputees because of, of that. And he said something to the effect of, you go to war with the army you have, not with the army you want. But that was longer after 9-11, that point that he did this, than VJ Day was after Pearl Harbor. And I can't understand why we don't have factories making ventilators. Totally. I don't understand this. You just mobilize. This is a war. It's a war with a, an invisible enemy, but it's a war. That's what we're on. This isn't a stimulus. Now, World War II, and that got us out of the Depression. It's unbelievable that there are nurses in garbage bags. Unbelievable. That's exactly the right word. It's unbelievable. And in the United States of America. And it here's, doesn't here's have to us. be this way. That's that's I think that fundamentally what has happened is that at the highest levels, in the president himself's mind, as well as the administration, they've had a dangerous conflict of priorities. And you've seen that from the very beginning, that they'd say, What do you think about the virus? And the the conflict of priorities is there was one priority which was don't make it seem like it's like it's important. And that manifested by don't do testing. We don't want testing because we don't want the numbers to go up. Don't take the people off the cruise ship. You remember the president said, well, the doctors say we should take those people and put them in the hospital. But I don't want to do that because then our numbers will go up. And that wasn't our fault. That that was telling. and, And the fact that the president was fighting about trade war, you know, with China, up until very recently, we had tariffs on medical products coming from China and other countries. And so the pandemic breaks out. One reason why we don't have more masks, more respirators, and simple medical equipment, you know, $5 type stuff, is because we've been applying the kind of trade war priorities 
to medical health, equipment. Yeah, to medical, to medical equipment and supplies. We've been applying that mentality when we should have been more rapidly shifting our mentality to, look, all of that stuff can wait until people aren't dying. This is a very interesting thing, I think, uh, that we did. We did put increased tariffs on medical equipment from China. And not only that, but because it was a trade war, discouraged (laughs) importing anything from China, buying stuff from China. And uh, when did that stop? I'm an economist, so you know I think trade wars are terrible. If you like trade wars, fine. Wait for a safer moment to have your trade war. Don't don't do it now. We we have to get in the mentality, which is defense mobilization to fight this virus, fighting this virus, getting tests, getting masks, getting respirators, getting all of that stuff is not just how you save people's lives. It's also how you save the economy. This is fake news, what you're giving here, because he had, when he imposed those tariffs on medical equipment from China, there was no virus. So I want to I jump in here and defend Trump. Okay, if you want to. But look, we have... I'm, I'm trying to think have of had the virus. We were applying the tariffs, and the whole mentality that under that undergirded the decision early on that we don't want your stinking tests. We don't want those foreign tests. We're going to make our own test. That's, that's part of the same mentality. And maybe there's a place for that mentality at some times, but when the virus is raging, the, the time for that mentality is done. We need the test now. We still have, we're, we're making more tests. We still need 10x the number of tests. We should never be somebody's got some symptoms that might be COVID-19, but we're rationing the tests and saying, well, you know, you're not old enough to take a test. That's crazy. The irony, of course, is that if we had had that test when South Korea had their test, we probably could go back to work much sooner. Yeah, look, by Easter, we might already have been out. In Korea, they aren't in lockdown. That's the thing. Even if you view, look, we made mistakes. We went eight weeks. We should have been paying more attention. We should have followed the pandemic playbook, which the administration was handed. The National Security Council has a pandemic playbook. They're not following it. Fine. All of that's in the past. Starting today, let's start following the playbook. Let's go get the tests. Let's try to do exactly what we should have been doing eight weeks ago. And let's do it today. And, you know, I I hope the president is listening. He'll be going like, you know what? He's right. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to do it today. But like I say, it's in. It would make the president look better. If the president is jealous of Governor Cuomo and the press that he's getting, he can do that. Just start telling the truth, mobilize the Defense Production Act to get the respirators and the masks and the ventilators and leave no stuff. Whatever it is, I'm going to get it to you. Instead of making the governors, what's happening now is the president is making the governors compete against each other for a very small number of tests and a small amount of 
protective equipment. So in the standard economics, there's massive demand. There's very short supply. The prices are skyrocketing. The governors are all trying to undercut each other to get the stuff diverted to their states. Instead of doing that, be the every governor in America, if the president was saying, I am going to get you everything you need, every governor in America would be saying, even the Democrats would be saying, look, I've disagreed with Donald Trump in the past, but I have to say Donald Trump is doing a great job to save lives in my state. Instead, what's happening is you've got governors saying, we don't have ventilators. We don't have masks. Where's the federal government? Then the president's threatening them and implicitly saying, if you want your equipment to save lives, then you got to suck up to me. We're, we're in a bonkers place. That is a really detrimental approach. And and I don't understand why the president's doing it. I mean, I guess I understand why he's doing it because it's kind of like his standard business MO. But does he not see that he would be more popular? People would be making him the hero of the story if he was adopting a more conventional approach? Listen, do you remember when he said uh, that John McCain was not a war hero because he got captured? Yes. And I like guys who weren't captured. And I thought, okay, it's over. You know. And then... Then he would do one of those every couple of weeks. And you go, it's over. And he's president of the United States. And so he, all of this kind of behavior in his mind has been validated. I'm the most powerful person in the world, which is what I've always wanted to be. And so if you're telling me I should become a different person, you're the one who's crazy because this has worked for me. And look at the polls now. Maybe. He's at 49%. He's as high as he's ever been. And you and I know, and the people listening know, he laughably dropped the ball. If, if you could laugh at any of this. And there's a hospital in New York that has a refrigerator truck there in their parking lot for a morgue Yeesh. because there's an overflow. And he's, he's not going to change. The governors are learning because he's a thug and they're learning that they have to kiss up to him and say, thank you, Mr. President, for the inadequate help. Thank you, Mr. President. You are doing an amazing job. No one's done a job as good as this. And then they'll get more ventilators. And then they'll get more masks. That's the way he's operated his entire life. And so he's not going to stop. So we have to sit and watch this man do this. And those of us who are, I believe, seeing it for what it is, have to be sickened by it. it that that's just what it is occasionally he'll land on the right thing to do <laughs> right i hope so well no but it'll be a day 
Yeah, or two it'll days. Be a day, right? It'll, it'll be infrastructure week over and over. Sorry, we gotta uh, we gotta go to a break right now. We'll be right back with Austin Goolsby. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Tell me what happens if this lasts uh, two, three more months. And then, then the, we have the all clear. Everybody comes out of their homes blinking in the sunlight. And they're going like, oh, it's over. I'm going to be able to go to school. And we're all going to be able to go to work. And I love you, my neighbor, who I haven't seen. <laughs> and then everybody is like, it's like Night of the Living Dead. People are out there going like, what do we do now? What happens with our economy then? Look, hopefully, if there have not been permanent bankruptcies, liquidation-type bankruptcies, hopefully, we can kind of go back to doing what we were doing before. The only upside to this astronomical increase in people filing for unemployment that just came out, the biggest ever. The only upside is if something happens that suddenly going down, maybe it could happen similarly suddenly coming back because that's a sign this isn't a normal recession. This is a virus economics recession. The operative word there was maybe. Yeah, correct. And that's what I'm asking you. You were chairman of the you know, counsel, the uh, uh, economic advisors for the president. Th- that's my question to you. Uh, w- when that happens, it, it feels just like things have would have changed in a way that I, I, I can't wrap my brain around, but I want you to wrap your brain around and then uh, unwrap it for our, our audience. If it's in two months, m- my view is mostly it'll be fine. Let's say it wasn't two months. It was eight months. Or let's say we had two months and then we came out, but then we got on this yo-yo until we found a vaccine where two months we all go out, but then we start getting it again. And then in September, here it comes back. And then we go back into lockdown again. And that's a very likely scenario. That's definitely a possibility. In in situations like that, we're going to get stretched. We're we're really going to be stretching. The family budgets are going to be stretched. A lot of companies might be 
liquidating for good, restaurants shutting down, a whole bunch of stuff going out of business such that when we come back, they can't just turn the lights back on and, you know, hey, take the board down out of the window. We're reopened for business. In that event, we will have the a more traditional recovery struggle where we claw, scratch, try to generate activity. I would think that at that point, you would definitely want conventional stimulus to come from the government. You've seen the Fed chair going on morning television, which I think has never happened before, saying, look, the reason we're doing these lending facilities and cutting these interest rates so low is, he, he re- said, we recognize we can't solve this problem, but we want to make it as easy as possible when this problem passes that that stuff could come back as quickly as possible. If we have lengthy problems, it will be hard to do that. And we will then go back to the old saw that it's far easier to destroy a job than it is to create one because you have to rematch. So you can tell the person, don't come to work tomorrow. But if you want someone to come to work tomorrow, you got to put out job postings. You got to find, you got to interview people. And so that's why the unemployment rate tends to go up a lot faster than it comes down. What we're hoping is that this thing being different than a regular business cycle means the unemployment rate could come down as fast as it goes up. But the longer this goes, the less true that's probably going to be. Will our economy change forever? I think so. You know, I think, I don't know forever, but for sure the foreseeable future, I think a lot of companies are going to be much more mindful about resilience. They probably will be hesitant to add more employment and they want more temp workers. They they want more cushion that they'll say, hey, if a, if a virus comes back again in the future, I don't want to be stuck on the whims of Congress supporting me. I want to be able to get as lean as I need to be as fast as I can. That's on the kind of the negative side. On the positive side, I do think that this crisis is kind of putting in people's face what we've been saying for a long time, which is there is a healthcare crisis in this country of millions of people, not insured, underinsured, can't get the kind of care that they need. This reveals it. There's nothing like a serious downturn to reveal the fault lines that kind of set the stage for the next the next government policies. I would not be surprised if there's on the back end of this a much heavier push in the economy to getting everybody covered and to have more robust unemployment insurance, paid sick leave and stuff like that. All of this has put in stark relief the rise of the gig economy in at least some measure was about trying companies trying to get the costs of benefits off of their balance sheet and put that onto the employees. And in a crisis like this, you see that doesn't really work. So I think the economy could be changed forever for the good if we recognize and try to adjust our system based on what we learned. Let me ask you about deficits and debt, mainly debt. 
because uh, when you were in the Obama administration and you saw that in Congress, especially after Republicans took took over in the House in 10 and then took the Senate in 14, but kind of all the way through, that there was this obsession from Republicans of keeping the deficit down. You know, I, I remember having trying to get co-sponsors to really important bills that were absolutely common sense that would help people, and they would say, do you have a pay-for? Do you have an offset? Can you? Where can you cut in order to have this program that is absolutely, clearly a great thing, like an Indian energy, something to help Native Americans, to help these tribes have economic activity? And they would go like, well, what's your offset? And which was my, just mind-boggling to me as how low my offset I needed. And nope, nope, you got to have something. You got to have something that, that where we can cut there to pay for this because I care about our deficit, our debt. Our debt is going to eat us, our kids alive. We're never going to be able to deal with this. Uh, in the future. You saw that, right? Yeah, and now we recognize it was totally disingenuous. We <laughs> thought we were having a conversation about fiscal responsibility, and the the main driver of deficits in the short run until President Trump was the business cycle. So if you had a recession, the deficit goes up because people make less, they pay less in taxes, and you got these automatic stabilizers that you that you got to pay for. So we have the worst recession of our lifetimes in 2007, 8, 9. The deficit goes up big time. And they say, oh, it's fiscal responsibility. You can't possibly, you shouldn't have stimulus. You shouldn't do anything because of the deficit. And it's totally disingenuous because you didn't need coronavirus crisis to tell you that. They yeah, literally, the, the first thing cut. they do is they get in and they say, let's have a $2 trillion tax cut for big corporations unpaid for. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's no problem. And I, I would just kind of, I was like, blah, 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 wait, wait, what? You, you're literally the same people who just a couple of years ago told us that we can't help the unemployed. We can't do anything to try to stimulate the economy because debt is going to bury us. And now you, you want $2 trillion of tax cuts. Uh, I think, look, the issue with deficits is not that it's going to drive up the interest rate of the United States. I don't, I don't believe in the, the fiscal crisis school of thought. The problem of debt and deficits is that you have to pay back the money. And so, as we roll forward in the future, the more debt you have today, the more of our budget will be consumed with paying the interest on this debt instead of paying for the stuff that we really care about. And all of that said, at a moment of crisis like this, it is, in your words, this is a war. And just in the same way when we're fighting World War II, the totally wrong thing to do would be to ask, well, what's your pay for? You know, what, what taxes are you going to increase here <laughs> to make World War II revenue neutral? 
It's, okay, we're landing the we're landing at Normandy. Yeah, we're landing at um, Normandy. What you know? Are you going to pay the for children's it. health insurance program? How are you going to pay for those boats? <laughs> and so that's I, the wrong thing to do. Thank you, Austin, so much for your uh, brilliant work, and I've been watching you out there uh, doing God's work. Hey, thank uh, you for everything you've done, Al, and we, and we always have a good time. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.